0: It's me, Helen. This is a bonus episode of the Paddlefish Caviar Heist. I sat down with journalist and author Michelle Neihouse. Michelle has reported on paddlefish poaching in Warsaw, so I wanted to get her perspective on what the future holds for these ancient creatures. Between the late 90s and the early aughts, Michelle lived off the grid in rural Colorado. This experience only deepened her appreciation for conservation as a way of restoring the precious relationship between humans and other species. Today, Michelle is a project editor at The Atlantic. In her most recent book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction, she tells the story of the modern conservation movement through the lives and ideas of the people who built it. It's a history that is sadly steeped in sexism, colonialism, and racism, particularly towards indigenous communities worldwide. Many of these problems are ongoing, But in certain ways, the movement has come a long way. These days, it's shifting its focus towards community-led conservation, which puts local people in control, allowing them to reinstate their relationship with other species while meeting their community's needs. I spoke to Michelle about wildlife crime, protecting endangered species, and the myriad challenges conservationists face today. How would you define the term conservation?
1: Conservation in the sense we're talking about it is really, it's the prevention of waste or loss is the dictionary definition. So it assumes that humans are going to, quote unquote, use those animals, whether they're going to eat them or whether they're going to build houses on their habitat. But conservationists want to prevent loss over the long term by keeping the use to minimal enough so that species and habitats can recover from that use. Conservationists want us to, in a sense, stay within our ecosystem budgets. This feels like I'm asking you a TED Talk-length question
0: here, but <laughs> could you give us an overview of the history of the modern conservation movement and sort of thinking about, like, why did it start and where and and when did it start?
1: People have practiced conservation since people have existed. I mean, people have always come up with ways of controlling the number of animals they killed or controlling their impacts on the environment, some successfully, some not so successfully. But what my book was about was about the modern conservation movement, which really didn't get started until societies started industrializing in the 1800s. And then a few people became aware of something that no one had ever thought possible before. And that was that human beings could drive species extinct. I mean, it's hard to imagine now because we grow up with that concept. But at that time, this is in Europe and North America, scientists believed that species were creations of God and they were around forever. They neither appeared nor disappeared. That was disproven in the early 1800s. But it took another 50 or 60 years until Darwin's origin of species came around for people to realize, oh, actually human activities could drive species globally extinct, you know, not just in our neighborhood, but all over the world, these species could disappear off the face of the earth. And so when people became aware of that, then they started to raise the alarm with their fellow members of their society trying to say, look, this is happening. This is our fault. This is a tragedy that is preventable. And at first, you know, these were mostly wealthy people who had the privilege of being able to say controversial things. Um, many of them were actually wealthy sportsmen who wanted to protect the species they loved to hunt. Because ecology was a really young science and people didn't really have a sense of how species depended on one another, they were mostly talking about really beautiful, majestic, fierce species. You know. Uh, charismatic megafauna, as we'd call them today. Bison, famously, was a species that people really rallied around after it was almost driven extinct by market hunters in North America in the 1800s and early 1900s. But over the course of the 20th century, conservationists really, they learned a lot from the ecology movement, and they started to realize, oh, we have to protect habitats, we have to protect relationships among other species, you know, we have to protect ecosystems, not just these species we happen to like. And that, I think, is the real progress of the conservation movement. We've learned what species need. Um, We've learned that they need other species. And then slowly, I think people have realized, oh, there's a lot to learn from people who came before us, because many of the ways of providing species with what they need have been worked out on a small scale by indigenous communities, by rural communities throughout history. It's just that those ways have been disrupted and ignored and forgotten by colonial regimes or by simply by time.
0: Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that sort of this colonization of North America, the sexism and the racism that have shown up in the modern conservation movement, both historically and things that you're even seeing today that are still happening.
1: Yeah, I went into this book project wanting to write a history of the conservation movement that would help people understand just how complicated these issues are. And I knew that there were some bad actors in the history of conservation, people who had Said reprehensible things and done some reprehensible things in the name of conservation, but I didn't think of it as a systemic problem until I really got more deeply into the research. But I really came to see that the elitism, the sexism, the racism, and this is, of course, a huge generalization, but the tendency has been for conservation institutions to default to top-down solutions and just say, we're going to draw a line around this place because there are some important species here. We're going to keep the people out. And that became especially tragic when the conservation movement moved out of North America and Europe and moved into colonized places like Africa, where they worked with colonial governments to establish national parks, and in places that no one who was establishing those parks knew very well. And even if they did know something about them, they didn't particularly care that people lived in them and had a relationship with the species in those places. You know, it was devastating for human communities, and it didn't do any good in many ways for the species themselves, because... All of a sudden, these parks were surrounded by people who understandably felt pretty hostile toward them and were not inclined to obey these new regulations. So that elitism and and the associated isms, I think, has still influenced the strategies that the conservation movement chooses. It's still present today. You still see it today. Often, in subtler ways, but there are plenty of people being displaced in national you know, by national parks and reserves around the world today. So there are still very egregious examples. And then there are strategies that are, I think, holding the conservation movement back that are rooted in the that elitism that has been part of the conservation tradition since its beginnings.
0: How do they go in and say, "Hey, we got to protect these particular endangered species? Can you talk a little bit about, like, the politics and the economic impact that those decisions have and kind of how it works.
1: Probably the conservation approach that most people in the US are most familiar with, the thing that they read about is the management of endangered species, right? They'll read an article in the paper, like this species of dolphin is endangered. This manatee is endangered. This bird is endangered Um, and it needs to be protected. And that's because we have the Endangered Species Act which was passed in 1973. It's still one of the most powerful conservation laws in the world. But I think the unintended consequence of the Endangered Species Act is that most people, at least in the U.S., most people think about conservation as being the management of species or the protection of species that are already super rare. And really, conservation should be about protecting species while they're still common, you know, protecting healthy populations of species, because, As we all know, once you get down to two northern white rhinos left on the face of the earth, it's very difficult, scientifically very difficult and very expensive, very risky to resuscitate that population. It takes years and years. Obviously, it's important to protect very rare species. I would never tell someone that they have to be the one to, quote unquote, pull the plug on a species and give up on it. But I think we should really widen our lens and think about conservation in a more broader way. But we need to protect these species while we're still common because that's when it's easiest and cheapest to do so. There's a big bill in Congress that actually, Miracle of Miracles, has huge bipartisan support. It's called Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And it would fund state agencies to do more proactive conservation. And I think funding these organizations adequately could be really Significant. If we we're talking about protecting the last two paddlefish <laughs> in North America, we would be, you know, this would be a, a much sadder story. Thinking about the 1980s
0: paddlefish poaching situation, uh, you know, when this first crossed your desk, like what
1: came to mind for you? I was immediately curious because crime is inherently interesting. And I didn't know much about paddlefish. And the fact that these odd looking ancient fish had been the subject of <laughs> an in, what seemed like an international trafficking ring <laughs> was fascinating to me um, that it was taking place in Missouri and you know classic middle America was also fascinating to me. So I learned about the earlier bust just as I started to look into the roots of the most of the bus that your story is about and was just very interested to find out that, that the state wildlife agents and some fish and wildlife agents who were working in the area, you know, were savvy enough and well-informed enough about the international caviar trade to note as early in the, as the 1980s, that sturgeon populations were going to crash in Russia and other parts of the Eurasian continent and that paddlefish caviar was going to be in much higher demand. They saw it coming and sure enough, Spanky Defray was the embodiment <laughs> of their prediction and he and others caught a whole lot of paddlefish illegally and sold those paddlefish eggs as caviar.
0: Yeah, I mean, thinking about Roadhouse, um, some people argued that the undercover sting was excessive and that the government went overboard in terms of prosecuting the Eastern Europeans. You know, the takeaway is that they never fully cracked the quote unquote international crime ring, right? They were never able to have a smoking gun that, hey, this stuff was going on to a said black market but it's really hard to prove. So
1: I guess from your perspective, with all of that in mind, what do you make of that? It sounds to me like a classic case of the little guys having to take the hit and the kingpins getting away with either very few consequences or no consequences at all. And from my time in Missouri, I know that there were plenty of people who were catching paddlefish to carry on a tradition of eating caviar that was really important to them. It was something that they missed from their homeland. They were, you know, pretty delighted to find that there was a acceptable source of caviar in this place where they had moved to and that, that was otherwise, you know, completely unfamiliar and alienating. They had this acceptable substitute of something that reminded them of home. So I have a really unique
0: position in this whole story, in that Yes, I'm a journalist, but part of what drew me to this story in the first place was two things. One, I'm an avid fisherman, I love fishing, and I am a huge outdoors person, which I don't hunt, I catch and release, but I love nature. And the other part is that I actually used to be a caviar dealer in New York City. Mm-hmm. There is a pretty decent chance that I unintentionally sold Roadhouse Row on the streets of New York City because of the way in which the luxury food world works because it's a fairly unregulated market unlike the traditional, you know, FDA stuff. Yeah. So, one of the undercover agents that I spoke with off the record that was part of Roadhouse actually had the perspective of their own theory of the black market, which was that when you think about the amount of people who were charged and the amount of places that they went to all of these different states, could the black market really just be a community or a patchwork of citizens who just took beyond their limits? But when you add up the amount of people that were kind of overfishing, that adds up, right? So, like, a black market doesn't have to be related to, say, these historical caviar mafias. So kind of zooming that back onto, again, the importance of this story and truly why conservation is important, how is it a slippery slope, you know, when you have too many people taking even slightly over the limits of what they think are okay? What can happen?
1: Right. So we would like to think that when these quote-unquote black markets are busted, that the person who gets punished is the person who's making zillions of dollars, (laughs) you know, from this far-flying international ring. But it sounds like it's equally likely in this case that there may be no one making millions of dollars, that there may simply be a bunch of people, each one slightly violating the rules, in order to get enough caviar, as you say, for a family celebration or for some kind of cultural connection, for things that we all can sympathize with. That said, I think this kind of oversight is still pretty important. And I think the goal of conservation writ large is to allow those kinds of uses, you know, to allow people to consume wildlife in various ways, because We're animals who need protein (laughs) and we're also, you know, we also live in cultures that, you know, have different traditional uses for animals that remain important to us. And we, you know, we take up space when we build our houses and all those things. So conservation ideally would allow these uses, would allow people to maintain these cultural connections, but also protect the species. I don't think you need to ruin people's lives over violations, but you do need to make sure that those rules are enforced and that people are aware of them. We don't have to look that far back in history to know that when there were no rules, for example, on the shooting and sale of songbirds in the early 1900s that they the songbirds were shot, you know, just wholesale, not only by people who wanted to sell the feathers to make hats, there was a huge market in feathered hats at the time, but by people who ostensibly loved them. Ornithologists, bird enthusiasts would just shoot a dozen songbirds without a thought because they wanted a closer look at them. There weren't very good binoculars at the time or very cheap binoculars at the time. So you know, it's easy to be sympathetic to those kinds of folks, but over time, a dozen birds here and a dozen birds there, we lost some gorgeous species that we'll never get to see in real life.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it it kind of just makes me think of one of my favorite parts about this whole paddlefish caviar heist story is simply the global impact that is this reverberation that continues, right? So in the 1980s, when Spanky DeFray and all of these different players are coming to Warsaw, what's happening across the world is the Iranian crisis. And there are sanctions taking place at that time some of the greatest caviar in the world is from Iran. So how that shifted and impacted that market then, thinking about Roadhouse and what was going on in Russia at that time, when we were there in Warsaw, we actually got recent accounts of lots of poaching that's going on. And right now, thinking ahead to kind of the future of paddlefish. Um, There's a current proposed bill entering into Congress as we speak that would make imported caviar illegal, regardless of whether or not it's farmed. Obviously, this is a bit of a loaded question, but how do you think that's going to impact paddlefish in the U.S. and obviously in Warsaw?
1: Yeah, I mean, all these things are so tricky and they're, of course, particular. Every situation, every species is different, so it's hard to speak generally. But I guess the general patterns I can point to are that total bans are very difficult to enforce, first of all, because the attention on wildlife crime is relatively underfunded to begin with. So a total ban is hard to enforce and tends to be flagrantly violated. And then it increases pressure on other sources, in this case, the paddlefish. At the same time, one thing we haven't talked about is that the paddlefish and the sturgeon are pretty, they're very unusual fish in that they have such long lifespans. And so when you're killing a fish for its row, you're killing an adult fish, it's like you're killing an old growth tree. It takes a long time for a paddlefish or sturgeon or any related fish to mature and start producing eggs. So it depends on the shape that the population is in and you know the amount of caviar harvest it can be expected to withstand without starting to decline irreversibly and i think allowing those cultural connections also has the effect of allowing people to have more care for these species because they benefit from them in practical and emotional ways so i think those uses are, are important and they can be beneficial on many levels. I love what you said about the paddlefish because,
0: you know, one of the things that I mentioned in the podcast is that these fish are typically older than an adult who can have a mortgage, typically, right? And, you know, it makes me think of that David Foster Wallace essay, Consider the Lobster, where it's like every time you eat a lobster, it's like killing a house cat in terms of its age.
1: Everyone should get a chance to see a paddlefish up close because they are dinosaurs, they look like dinosaurs, they are huge and gnarly looking. It's unbelievable that we exist on the same planet that they do and I hope that both of our species persist for a very long time. We're just starting to learn how these species see the world, you know? There's so much we don't know and species like the paddlefish I think are They're valuable for many reasons. They're valuable to their ecosystem in ways we probably don't understand. But even if they weren't, I think they're important to us just in reminding us of how much we don't know. They're important in keeping us humble.
0: Well said. All right, well, we'll leave it at that. So thank you so much for taking the time. This was amazing. Oh, good. I hope it was helpful. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can purchase Michelle's book, Beloved Beasts, online or at your favorite retailer. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Paddlefish Caviar Heist and joining us on this wild adventure. It's been one hell of a ride. Until next time, I'll see ya. The Paddlefish Caviar Heist is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Helen Hollyman. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producer is Jason Hoke. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. David Gavi Herbert is executive producer, based on original reporting by David Gavi Herbert. The series producer is Aaron Keller. The story editor is Matt Willis. Thomas Curry is the managing producer. Audio recording by Austin Sizzler at Eastside Studios. Audio mix and sound design by Matt Peaty. Special thanks to Reham Musa and the Multitrack Fellowship for helping to produce this episode.